great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. Before we begin, I need to apologize for my voice this week. I'm getting over a bout of the flu, and I'm not 100% back to being myself. So if I'm sounding a little thin or a little scratchy, that's why. There is no place like up north in the summer, especially in the communities along the northern part of Lake Michigan. The trees are green, the water is blue, and the beers are cold. Picturesque downtowns dot the state highways along with rolling hills and deep woods. Places like Harbor Springs, Petoskey, Charlevoix, Sutton's Bay, Traverse City. The days are warm and sunny, and the nights are often cool. The humidity provided by the big lakes bring the temperature down, making it just right for a campfire and a good night's sleep in the days before air conditioning. That's why the Robison family had a place near Petoskey, because it's such an idyllic place to spend the summer. The name Petoskey comes from the Ottawa Indians, who lived in Traverse Bay, before the white settlers came. Petoskey means, where the light shines through the clouds. Isn't that beautiful? Petoskey is in the northwest corner of the state. It's about a four-hour drive from the Detroit area. Having a summer home, or cottage, as they're most often referred to, was a popular choice for people of a certain income. Visitors from Detroit and Chicago make the drive up for a week or a long weekend of fun on one of the many smaller lakes. Or journey all the way to the northern shores of Lake Michigan. This is where the Robison family had a cottage. They christened her Somerset, and the name of the cottage was on a big wooden plaque that was displayed above the fireplace. The stone and log home was steps away from the shores of Lake Michigan. It was tucked in the woods, private, secluded, the closest neighbor dozens of yards away. The house was in a planned resort community known as Blisswood, It was named for the home builder who designed rustic and beautiful houses made of log and stone. It was mid-June, 1968, when Richard and Shirley Robison headed to Somerset, accompanied by their four children. The Robisons had three sons, Richard Craig, a 19-year-old who had just finished his freshman year at Eastern Michigan University, Gary, age 16, Randy, 12, and Susan, age 7. Neighbors at Blisswood saw the family several times over the next few days. Richard talked of taking his family to Florida with a stop in Kentucky. So when the family wasn't seen again after June 25th, no one thought much of it. The Robisons must be headed for Kentucky to look at horse farms. 
or shopping for a condo on the beaches of Florida. Summer continued at Blisswood. Temperatures are in the mid-70s and the nights cool down, but the humidity by the big lake is persistent. As June turned to July, Somerset was quiet, but it wasn't vacant. On July 22, 1968, a group had gathered at one of the neighboring cottages for another up-north pastime, playing cards. As they sat down to their game, they couldn't help but notice a stench coming from the woods. They called the caretaker, Monty Bliss, thinking that a deer had died out there and the carcass needed to be dragged away. Bliss searched for the source of the overpowering smell, which led him to Somerset, and a truly grisly scene. It seems that sometime during the evening of June 25th, 1968, someone had attacked the Robison cottage. The entire Robison family was dead, and they'd been dead for weeks, their bodies waiting patiently in their sunny cottage by the lake for someone to find them. Richard and Shirley Robison lived in the Detroit suburb of Lathrop Village. Lathrop Village is a tiny enclave of homes inside the city of Southfield. The planned community was developed in the 1920s as a series of upscale homes on curving streets and circles. Their Lathrop Village home was just a block or two away from the home of hockey legend Gordie Howe. Robison ran his business, an advertising firm and a rather avant-garde art magazine, Empresario, out of a small one-story office on Southfield Road in Southfield. If you're keeping track of places we've been previously, the Robison home and office are just a mile and a half south of the location where the body of Harvey Leach, your uncle in the furniture business, was found in the trunk of his car in 1974. It's also the same city where the body of Mark Stebbins will be discovered in 1976. By all outward appearances, silver-haired Richard Robison was a successful advertising executive and a dedicated family man. Shirley Robison kept a lovely home and raised well-dressed, well-mannered children. The family lived in a brick ranch home in Lathrop Village and summered at the lakefront cottage between Petoskey and Harbor Springs. Richard Robison wasn't a smoker or a drinker. Ten years earlier, he'd helped found the Calvary Lutheran Church, and the family attended services there each week. In the summer of 1968, Robison was shopping for a condo in Florida, or a horse farm in Kentucky, or both. This was also the summer that Shirley and Richard would celebrate their 20th wedding anniversary. The Robison family seemed to embody the American dream. The afternoon of the 25th, there were tree trimmers working in Blissfoot, and they are the last people to see the family alive. Their workday ended around 4 p.m. Afternoon turned to evening, and at 9 p.m. on June 25th, neighbors a quarter mile away from the Robison family cottage heard gunshots and yelling. They didn't think much of it, figuring someone was taking pot shots at the many seagulls on Lake Michigan's beach. While the sun was headed for the horizon, there was still plenty of daylight left for such an activity. After June 25th, the family wasn't seen again, 
and neighbors assumed they'd headed south as the patriarch of the family had mentioned. Before we go any further, this was a brutal crime. A family was annihilated. The murderer worked hard to kill everyone and cover his tracks. I don't like getting into details, but in this case, it's important to the story. Consider yourself warned. Richard Robison was a healthy 42-year-old man. His older boys were 19 and 16. Teenagers, healthy kids. How could someone overpower them? Investigators theorized that Dick Robison was in the living room when shots from a twenty-two caliber rifle came through the window, striking him in the chest. The killer then entered the home, shooting Randy and Shirley before finding the remaining brothers in the hallway, probably headed to their room for a hunting rifle, which they were unable to reach before being gunned down. To make sure everyone was dead, each victim was shot once in the head with a twenty-five caliber handgun. Susie, the youngest, at seven years old, was bludgeoned with a claw hammer. I suspect that the time that elapsed from the first shot to the last was less than five minutes. Then the killer had all the time that he needed to complete his gruesome work. You see, he wasn't interested in shooting the family and leaving. That wouldn't do. He had two female victims to punish and bodies to move. He didn't want the victims to be visible if someone peered in through a window. He started with 39-year-old Shirley Robison, stripping her from the waist down, then positioning her body, giving the appearance of a sexual attack. She was left on the floor near the entrance of the cottage. Later, law enforcement could not determine if she'd been sexually assaulted. But her clothing, her underwear, girdle, and pants were sliced away using a knife or possibly scissors. Her remains were then covered with a blanket. Dick Robison's body was dragged to the hallway in the center of the home and placed next to the heater. The bodies of his two youngest children, Randy and Susie, were piled next to him. The killer covered the three of them with a rug. The older boys, Gary and Richard... They were left in the back bedroom. All of the male victims were shot, but the two female victims, Mother Shirley and the youngest, Susie, they received extra attention. Shirley was posed and her clothing cut away. Susie was bludgeoned with a claw hammer. Was the attack actually focused on the two females, or was this done as a distraction to investigators? Because overnight temperatures in late June dipped into the upper 50s, at the time of the attack, the house had been closed against the cooler weather and the heater turned on. Meaning that in the days ahead, with the daytime temperatures nearing 80 degrees, the heater was still running. And that's how Somerset stayed until July 22nd, when the overwhelming smell of decomposition drifted towards the neighbor's place, halting their card party. Did I mention that the neighbor's house was dozens of yards away? In addition to the gruesome killings, Shirley's diamond ring was gone, along with Dick's expensive Omega watch. Cash, thought to be in the hundreds of dollars, was missing from Dick's wallet as well. Investigators could hardly get near the place, put off by the stench and the clouds of flies. They resorted to donning gas masks, 
to explore the house and remove what was left of the Robison family. The windows of the house were open wide to encourage the flies and the smell to dissipate. Between the bugs and the advanced state of decomposition, it was a horrifying mess. Sheriff Richard Zink, the head lawman in Emmett County, was out of state, vacationing at Yellowstone Park. He didn't learn of the crimes until a park ranger, noticing the Michigan plates on his vehicle, asked him if he knew what had happened in his home state. Zink immediately ended his family trip, their first vacation in years, and returned to Emmett County, arriving days after the scene was discovered. The young sheriff who was covering for Zink, he was new to the job, and the worst mass murder in northern Michigan history happened on his watch. The sheriff's department didn't secure the scene in the way that we, people who watch CSI and Investigation Discovery, would hope that they would. When the call went out on the radio, law enforcement from every department in earshot reported to check things out. By the time crime scene technicians from the Michigan State Police Lab arrived, a dozen people had been through Somerset. Remember, there's no phone at the cottage, so someone had to find a house with a phone and place the call to Lansing. Then the lab had to be called in and make the three-and-a-half-hour drive to Goodhart. Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith entered the home briefly with the first responders on July 22nd. He later burned the suit he'd been wearing. He said there was no way to get the smell of death out of the fabric. When it was time to perform autopsies on the remains, they decided against taking them to a nearby hospital. The small medical centers in Petoskey and Traverse City were not equipped to handle something like this. A decision was made to take the bodies to the Emmett County Fairgrounds. Equipment was borrowed and brought in, and the work was done there. Who would do this to the Robison family, and why? There are several suspects to consider, so let's talk about them. Some people thought that the murders were a mob hit, that Dick Robison owed money to the Detroit Mafia, and they sent cleaners up to take care of the family in retribution. I don't like this theory for two reasons. One, while Robison may have been having financial problems, why drive 300 miles to shoot the family when they could have clipped the patriarch in his office on Southfield Road? Two, forgive me for saying this, but it seems out of character for a mafia hitman to take time to bludgeon a girl after shooting her in the head. Finally, think about the death of Harvey Leach in 1974. He was in financial trouble with the mob, they cut his throat and dumped his body in the trunk of his car. His young kids were left out of it. The next suspect to explore is caretaker and home builder Monty Bliss. Born Chauncey Bliss Jr., Monty and his father, Chauncey Sr., designed and built the lakefront homes in the 1950s. With a stone foundation and walls made of lacquered logs, the design was popular and it's in demand to this day. Monty Bliss and his family knew the Robisons. In fact, Monty's son, Norman, was friendly with 19-year-old Richard and 16-year-old Gary Robison. A few days before the murders, 18-year-old Norman was killed in a tragic motorcycle accident. He'd been out drinking, lost control of his bike, and slammed into a tree. It was his father that discovered the body. Dick Robison made a visit to the Bliss household to pay his respects to the family apologized for not being able to attend the funeral service because of their travel plans, and he gave Norman's mother, Dorothy Bliss, $20 in lieu of sending flowers. 
In today's money, it would be like handing $125 to the family. It was a generous gift, and I believe that it was given with kindness. In addition to creating beautiful homes, Monty was known for his eccentric behavior, and many in the small community thought it possible that in a fit of rage and grief at the loss of his son, he directed his anger at the Robison family. Nancy Bendixson, the daughter of Monty Bliss, disagrees. Yes, her father was an unusual man, a man that had an untreated neurological condition, but she insists that he never, ever hurt anyone. The accusations, the whispering and speculation, it deeply hurt him and his family. Nancy's mother, Dorothy, agreed, saying, quote, he could never have done something like that. Others say that if Bliss was drinking, he had no problem pointing out that the Robisons got what was coming to them. Now, these are the same people that like to bring up that Monty Bliss was a handyman and carried a claw hammer like the one used to bludgeon Susan and Shirley. I have a claw hammer, too, but I didn't do it. Monty took a polygraph examination, and he passed. Whispers and rumors would follow Bliss the rest of his days. He died in 1980 at the age of 69. Another name that I've seen swirling around this case is that of serial killer John Norman Collins. If you haven't heard of Collins, the Canadian-born serial killer was a student at Eastern Michigan University in 1968, just like Richard Craig Robison. In fact, the two students knew each other, at least casually, perhaps better. Was it possible that Collins, feeling slighted by something Robison said or did during their time together as EMU students, decided to attack the Robison family? It doesn't seem likely. Collins liked his victims female and college age. He liked ligatures and visiting the bodies after the crime. The Robison family slang does not fit his profile. Eventually, law enforcement ruled him out. At the time, it must have been easier to think that there was just one monster in Michigan, and his name was John Norman Collins. If you're wondering, I will be covering John Norman Collins. He was Ted Bundy before there was a Ted Bundy, and it's quite a story. Murder was an uncommon thing in Emmett County. The last homicide was back in 1958 in Petoskey, when Paul Achenbach killed his mother and rolled up her body in a rug. The Achenbach case was bizarre. Achenbach was a World War II veteran, an insurance agent, a member of the Rotary and the Elks Club, an active member of the Episcopalian Church. He was well-known and well-liked in the community. His elderly mother, Clara, lived in an apartment attached to his insurance office. One day, the 59-year-old snapped, and he murdered his 78-year-old mother. He rolled her body up in a rug and stuffed her in a closet, and then he lined the closet with towels to mask the smell of her remains. It would be months before anyone even noticed she was missing. It was Achenbach's wife, Gretchen, who demanded to see her mother-in-law. When Paul couldn't produce her, she called the police. Achenbach confessed to where his mother could be found, 
When they located the body, they found that Paul had written a note of apology back when the murder occurred. I'm sorry this had to happen, but I was drunk. I think I've been out of my mind for some time. Achenbach was charged with first-degree murder, but pled guilty to manslaughter. In a bizarre coincidence, Achenbach had taken over his insurance business from the father of Emmett County prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith, and the former prosecutor was quoted in Achenbach's obituary when he died in 1978. Smith referred to Achenbach as, quote, a soft-spoken gentleman. Before we get to the last suspect, the man who is the popular choice as the doer of this heinous crime, I want to talk about the evidence. Let me remind you that the bodies were in a house on the edge of Lake Michigan, a house with the heater turned on at the height of summer. The house was closed up, and by the time the bodies were discovered, the condition of the remains had deteriorated greatly. The house was also filled with flies. Again, my heart goes out to the first responders who had to sort through that mess. So the murder weapons, except for the claw hammer, were never found. The hammer itself, potentially a great source of fingerprints, was not helpful. A member of the sheriff's department used a cloth to pick up the hammer, and the cloth may have disturbed any prints that had been left behind. The floor of the house was spattered with blood and bloody drag marks from where the bodies being moved. Police were able to preserve one bloody footprint. There were also shell casings on the floor and, of course, bullets from the bodies. In 1968, checking for DNA was unheard of, and the advanced state of decomposition made checking Shirley Robison's body for signs of sexual assault impossible. When law enforcement went to Robison's Southfield office to talk with his staff, Robison's assistant told them of a heated discussion between Dick Robison and his employee, Joseph Scalaro. Robison's secretary would tell law enforcement that Dick Robison became aware of financial discrepancies after talking with his banker at the National Bank of Detroit, and he tried reaching Scalaro to discuss the missing money. But Scalaro was dodging him. Robison finally caught him at the office the morning of June 25th, and there was a heated exchange. After the phone call, Scalaro left the office for the day. After the murders, a forensic audit was performed of the business's financial situation, and it appeared that Richard was running full-page ads in Empresario magazine that were not requested, nor were they paid for. This was a commonly used trick to make the magazine appear more profitable. The forensic accountant's work revealed that $60,000 was missing from the business accounts. In today's money, that's almost half a million dollars. The money had vanished between mid-April and mid-June 1968, a time when Richard was traveling extensively on business and could not be responsible for the funds being taken. Today, you do your banking from an ATM or your computer or even on your phone. In 1968, banks were open roughly 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. Monday through Friday. Things were done in person, face-to-face. -face. If you were traveling, you might have to physically enter a bank where the banker would then place a call back to your bank and verify the funds were available prior to cashing your check. 
If it wasn't Robison accessing the funds, who was it? Law enforcement looked closely at Robison's right-hand man, Joseph Scalaro. Joseph Scalaro III was an Army veteran, a smart young man who'd studied at Harvard University. Scalaro was in his thirties with a wife, two sons, and a home in Birmingham. He was a gun enthusiast and a skilled sharpshooter. He was known to own the same types of weapons used to eliminate the Robison family. Robison had hired Scalaro in 1965 to work on Empresario magazine. When questioned by police, Scalaro agreed that yes, he and Robison had quarreled on the phone that morning, but he didn't drive to Goodhart and kill anyone. He'd gone downtown to Cobo Hall for a plumbing convention, then he'd stopped at the Pontchartrain Hotel in Detroit for a drink at the bar. On the way home, he'd checked the Robisons' house to make sure that the heavy rain that had fallen had not caused water to seep into their basement. Unfortunately, it had, and Scalaro was there cleaning up water from the house for at least an hour. No one could verify his movements on the 25th except for his wife, who told police that, yes, he had returned home around 10 or perhaps 11 p.m. that night. This made it impossible for Scalaro to be the trigger man. If the ear witnesses were correct, the shots and shouting they heard on June 25th happened around 9 p.m. There was no way that he could have shot the family at 9 p.m. and then driven almost 300 miles back to Detroit in two hours. Hoping to find someone who could place him at Cobo Hall, they interviewed people who had attended the convention that day, but none of them remembered seeing or speaking to Scalaro. When Emmett County Prosecutor Wayne Richard Smith interviewed Scalaro, he was struck by how often the man contradicted himself. Smith later said that Scalaro had means, motive, and opportunity to commit this crime. In early 1968, Smith had decided that he would not seek re-election as Emmett County Prosecutor. He'd had the job since 1963, and he was ready for a change. When the elections happened in November, David Nogle took over as Emmett County Prosecutor. During the investigation, law enforcement learned that Scalaro owned a rifle identical to the one used in the murders. He also owned a 25 caliber handgun. Scalaro was quick to point out that he and Robison owned 25 caliber guns. He'd bought one for himself and one for his boss as a gift. When law enforcement checked the Robison home in Lathrop Village for guns, they didn't find any. The ammunition used to kill the Robinson family was rare. It was a European-made brand called Seiko, S-A-K-O. This brand is manufactured in Finland, and it's hard to find in the United States. Law enforcement discovered that in February of 1968, Scalaro purchased two 25 caliber Beretta handguns and two boxes of Seiko ammunition from a gun store in Flint. Joe's wife, Laura, told investigators that sometime in June of 1968, Joe took one of the weapons with him to work, and she did not see it again. When police visited the Oakland County shooting range Scalaro frequented, they found shell casings fired by the same weapon used at the murder scene. Scalaro once owned two Armalite AR-7 22 caliber rifles, the weapon that was used in the murders. 
He told police that he gave one gun to his brother-in-law and another to a friend who lived in Chicago. They were only able to locate one of the guns. The other gun was never found. Just like what happened with the two twenty-five caliber Beretta handguns. The Armalite AR-7 rifle is a takedown weapon, meaning it can be broken down easily for transport or concealment. I would imagine it can also be broken down for easy disposal. Shells taken from the gun range that Scalaro frequented were fired by the same weapon, an Armalite AR-7 rifle used in the Goodhart murders. Not the same type of weapon, but the same weapon. The bloody footprints found at the scene matched the shoe size worn by Joseph Scalaro. They also matched a set of shoe covers owned by Scalaro, except that Scalaro's covers were brand new, meaning they couldn't have been the covers that left a bloody footprint at the house. If you aren't familiar with these shoe covers, Google totes rubber overshoes. I remember my father wearing those over his dress shoes when it rained, just like it did in Detroit the day of the Goodhart murder. The week after the July 4th holiday, Shirley Robison's mother contacted Robison's office because she hadn't heard from her daughter and she was worried. It was Joe Scalaro who reassured her that he'd recently talked to Dick Robison and all was well. Circumstantial evidence piled up around Joseph Scalaro. Not enough to charge him, but enough to make law enforcement very interested. You know that I'm not a big fan of polygraph tests. But between 1968 and 1972, Scalaro failed three of them related to the murders. The three tests had very different questions. One test was about the actual murders. One test was about the weapons used in the murders, and so on. He failed all three. While neighbors nearly a quarter mile down the road heard shooting and shouting around 9 p.m. the night of June 25th, a police report dated August of 1968 notes, that one of the boys was wearing a wristwatch, and it stopped at 6.45 p.m. If we use the 6.45 p.m. time as the midpoint of the attack, it's possible that Scalaro could have committed the murders, arranged the bodies, and been on the road to Detroit by 7 p.m., and made the 270-mile drive home along Interstate 75 in four hours, arriving around 11 p.m., just like his wife said. When the financial audits were done, it was clear that Scalaro had helped himself to Robison's business funds in his absence, even giving himself a generous pay raise. With Robison deceased, charges couldn't be brought against him because Scalaro said that Robison had given him verbal permission to do these things, and there was no one to dispute that, so he couldn't be prosecuted for misappropriation of funds. Michigan State Police Detectives Lloyd Stearns and John Fleece spent months building a case against Scalaro. They presented their case to Emmett County Prosecutor Donald Noggle, who declined to pursue charges. The MSP was surprised by the decision. Rumors circulated that rustic and rural Emmett County wasn't prepared for a trial of this magnitude. Or perhaps Noggle himself wasn't up to the task. Maybe he didn't feel the case was strong enough to bring to a jury. Whatever the cause, it wouldn't be Emmett County that brought charges against Joseph Scalaro. 
1973, newly elected Oakland County Prosecutor L. Brooks Patterson was willing to charge Joseph Scalaro with conspiracy to commit murder. It wasn't the six counts of first-degree murder that the killer or killers deserved, but it was something. Remember Brooks? We talked about him in the Oakland County Child Killer episodes. Someone in the prosecutor's office knew Scalaro's mother and tipped her off that an arrest warrant was forthcoming. Mrs. Scalaro warned her son of what lie ahead. At this point, Scalaro had been through five years of detectives and collections agencies, five years of leaving his Birmingham home to a daily drive past the impossible-to-avoid Akasha Park Cemetery, where the Robison family is buried. Despite buying out the successful and profitable business from the Robison family estate, Scalaro couldn't make a go of it. He couldn't make a success of the business that Robison earned a handsome living from. He'd lost the accounts and run impresario into the ground. By the end of 1972, he was deeply in debt. He could no longer afford employees or staff. His mother, Kitty Scalaro, worked for him a few days a week helping with clerical tasks. On March 8, 1973, 38-year-old Scalaro went to work for the last time. He closed himself in his office, wrote a suicide note, and shot himself in the head. The note was an apology for being a liar and a phony, for forging his mother's signature on checks to keep the collection agencies at bay. He added a postscript where he denied killing the Robison family. Quote, I'm a liar cheat. I am not a murderer. This has many an internet detective asking if Scalaro leading off with, I am a liar, means that he's actually a murderer as well. Joseph Scalaro left behind a wife and two young sons. Michigan State Police Detective Lloyd Stearns once told Scalaro, you may not have killed the Robisons, but you know who did. Stearns and his partner, John Fleece, worked the case for several years. For Stearns, when Scalaro died, so did the investigation. But that's not the end of the story. In 1970, Somerset would be destroyed. First, the curiosity seekers couldn't leave the place alone. Then there was the inability to get the smell of death out of the beautiful lacquered wood walls of the home. The property has been sold many times in the last 40-some years. There's a new house built on the lot, but the location where Somerset once stood is now a stand of pine trees. In 1975, something interesting happened. A car was left on the side of the road along M14. The car, a blue 1965 Chevy with Ohio plates, was tagged as abandoned, and a state trooper opened the glove compartment looking for information about the owner. What he found instead breathed new life into the investigation. In the glove compartment was a luggage tag, and the inscription on the tag read, Shirley L. Robison, and had the Robison's address in Lathrop Village. State troopers tracked the car from its initial purchase in Toledo, Ohio, back in 1966, through its many owners. Nothing they discovered led them any closer to an answer. Why was Shirley's luggage tag in the car? How did it get there? And who left the car on a desolate stretch of freeway between Ann Arbor and Oakland County? A satisfactory answer to this question would never be uncovered. 
Something to consider is that the contents of the Robinsons' Lathrop Village home were sold in an estate sale or something similar. It's possible that someone purchased the suitcase and, needing to use it, removed the luggage tag and shoved it in the glove box where it was forgotten until years later when a state trooper uncovered it. In 2003, hoping that improved DNA technology could bring answers to the long unsolved case, evidence was pulled out of storage and sent for testing. The evidence included the hammer and foreign hairs found on Shirley Robison's body. Unfortunately, the samples were too contaminated or too degraded to provide any real answers. The Robison family murders, or Goodhart murders as they are also known, are still open. There is a detective assigned to the case, and he processes the tips that still trickle in after all these years. If it wasn't Joseph Scalaro, the actual killer or killers are unlikely to be caught after all this time. We may never know what fueled the rage that led to the additional assaults on Shirley and Susie Robison. Most of the people associated with this case have passed on. Sheriff Zink died of cancer in 1990. Kitty Scalaro, who worked as a secretary for her son until his death, died in 1979. Detroit reporter Al Kosky, he covered the story from the summer of 68 until his death in 2010. His extensive files on the case were passed on to another researcher, in the hope that someday this case can be closed. If you find yourself in Petoskey or Harbor Springs and want to check out the area as it was during the summer of 68, I suggest that you visit Legs Inn. You'll find it in Cross Village. The historic waterfront restaurant is likely a place the Robison family dined that summer. Please don't pester the new owners of the property that once housed Somerset. Some things are better left undisturbed. If you want to do some research, visit the Petoskey Public Library. They have several binders of information on the case. The Harbor Springs Historical Museum has the Somerset sign that hung over the fireplace at the Robison family cottage, among other items. At the beginning of my research, I knew little about the story other than it involved the death of an entire family. I've never been to Goodhart, and despite having family with cottages up north, I am not as familiar with this part of the state. As I dug into the research, I started to think about this case differently, not just because it was a brutal and unthinkable crime, annihilating an entire family, but the killer went back and finished them off with a handgun, and then he assaulted the two female victims further. The killer displayed unbelievable cruelty. The pain, horror, and shame that this crime wrought on the Goodhart community and the Felton and Robison families, it lingers. We're five decades out, and it's still there. Shirley and Dick were 39 and 42 years old. Their brothers and sisters, friends, work associates, neighbors, the teachers and classmates of the Robison children, people in the congregation at the Calvary Lutheran Church, every one of them was touched by this horror. The suspicion cast on Monty Bliss hasn't been forgotten by his own children and grandchildren. And we can't forget Scalaro's sons, who live in the shadows of the accusations around their father and his suicide. If you'd like to learn more about the case and see some pictures of the area and the house, I recommend that you check out 9 and 10 news coverage and special features on the Robison family.
I'll share information on the book, When Evil Came to Good Heart, written by Marty Link. That'll be on my website if you'd like to read it. If you have information about the Robison family murders, please contact the Emmett County Sheriff's Office at 231-439-8900. I did not set out to share three stories of family annihilators in a row. Susan Smith, Lawrence Delisle, and now the Robisons. Unfortunately, it just worked out that way. Next week's case will bring us much closer to present day. We'll be exploring a disappearance from North Carolina. I also hope that my voice will be back where it should be, and I appreciate you bearing with me this week. If you enjoy the show, I hope you will join Troy and Applejack's 10 in leaving a five-star review. If you want to talk about the cases we cover here, join the Already Gone podcast discussion group on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod. If you have suggestions or feedback, email me, host at AlreadyGonePodcast.com. Our music is provided by the talented Luke Superior. You can find the song used in this episode, Ego Death, and more of his work on SoundCloud. I appreciate you, listeners. Thank you for coming back each week. And please, be good to each other. up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. 